Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. A gun-free zone is let's go in and let's attack. We as a country failed our children. Their solution is to make you, all of you, less free. This shouldn't happen. Hi, and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and that means I'm sitting in for the real-life Trumpcasters. And today on the show, we wanted to talk a little bit about Donald Trump and guns and high school revolutionaries. As of this moment in time, Donald Trump has been for the automatic weapons ban and also against it, for arming teachers in schools and then also against it, for John Wick-style cafeteria workers. And then today, he even floated the idea of teachers getting bonuses for for packing heat on campus. All of this in the name of solutions to the spectacular failure of gun policy in America. Also this week, a handful of 17-year-olds at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida, still grieving the loss of their teachers and friends, have proven that neither Donald Trump nor the NRA are politically untouchable. They've done that by forcing the NRA to take radically different positions from, well, the NRA, and all in the span of just a few days. To make sense of these stances and just where we stand in the gun debate in America, I'm going to chat later with Adam Winkler, whose book, Gunfight, The Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America, traces the history of what we're all trying to talk about today. That's coming up later in the show, though. First, I wanted to fet the amazing student organizers in Parkland, Florida, with Mary Beth Tinker. Well, the year was 1965, and I was living a, an ordinary life in Des Moines, Iowa, in the Midwest. Um, now, Tinker was, as you may know, one of the students who became the name plaintiff in a landmark student speech case from the 1960s. That case was Tinker versus the Des Moines Independent Community School District. At that time, Mary Beth Tinker was only 13, and she wore a black armband to school in silent protest of the Vietnam War. Well, Mary Beth was suspended for that protest along with four other students, and in 1968, the U.S. Supreme Court vindicated her in a 7-2 decision finding that school children do not, quote, shed their constitutional rights to freedom of speech or expression at the schoolhouse gate. We wanted to talk to her about the students at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High and to hear about how student speech and protest have fared in the 50 years since her case was decided. So joining us right now on the line is Mary Beth Tinker. Uh, Mary Beth, first of all, thank you so much for taking a little time to chat with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me, Dolly. I'm so happy to be with all of you. So I, I want you to start by telling us what it was like when you, as a 13-year-old kid, right? When you were 13, these kids we're talking about in Florida, they're 17. You were like a fetus compared to them. And yet you were 13 and you and your brother and your friends decide to wear a black armband in December of 1965. Tell us what got you there. I was motivated by 
something that I think is motivating these kids as well. And some of them are very young that are who are speaking up. It was emotion. When I saw the scenes on TV of the children running from their burning huts in Vietnam and the soldiers in their body bags on the ground and the body count that we had on the news every night, it's really a story of journalism, thank God for the free press, because without that, we wouldn't have known what was going on. But it, it made us feel so emotional about it. And, and then that combined with the powerful examples in our lives of people who do stand up and take action when they have the emotion and the feeling that something's not fair, it's not right. And and what do you say, Mary Beth, when folks say, oh, come on, they're only 17, they barely shave, they can hardly tie their shoes? <laughs> I mean, are they being manipulated or were you being manipulated? No, I, I think they're being a group that is disrespected, children and teenagers. And it's been that way for, for, you know, through history, children have been disrespected, which is why there's a children's rights movement around the world. And it's really a human rights issue. There are young people all over the world who are speaking up and standing up about the issues that affect their lives. And so I hate to see these uh, kids, you know, dismissed by people that claim that they're being manipulated, this and that. I mean, come on, these Gun policies and laws affect these kids. I don't know how they could possibly affect them any more directly. And they have the credibility right now to say what they will about guns and about their, their predicament. People always used to say, we don't, us kids, you know, when we, when we mourn for the dead in Vietnam, people say, oh, these kids don't know anything about Vietnam. But wait, the adults knew very little about Vietnam at the time as well. They didn't know where Vietnam was. They didn't know the history of Vietnam. They didn't know that Vietnam had been a colony of the French. They didn't know any of that. So I have a great respect for young people, for children, and for their wisdom and and their ability and desire to speak up about uh, issues that affect their lives. So so tell me this, Mary Beth, take me back to 1965, and you and, and your family and friends are talking about this silent peaceful protest. Did did you know that the school was going to discipline you or did you think they were going to let you slide? Well, they weren't planning to until a few days before our planned, um, you know, wearing, our plan to wear the armbands was going to be on December 16th. So a couple days earlier, it came out in this morning register that the principals had met and made a rule against armbands, black armbands. So there were about 50 kids signed up to wear the armbands and that dropped down to a handful. I think seven or eight kids eventually did wear the black garments and five got suspended. So I did know that there was a chance of getting suspended. I was only in eighth grade. I was so shy. Um, But I learned later about something called civil disobedience. And this is probably the most difficult thing to explain to students when I tell them about the Tinker story, because there was a rule and yes, we broke it. Well, as I tell students, if there's a rule or a law that you feel very, very strongly about, you're very morally, you know, um, think you're thinking about this a lot in your conscience, number one. Number two, you can take action about that, but it's got to be peaceful. And number three, you have to be willing to take the consequence. So kids who are planning walkouts and things like that, I mean, they do need to be willing and ready to take the consequence because... Under the interpretation of the 
uh, by the Supreme Court right now, they they will be open for being suspended. However, I was reading about a principal this morning, I think in Texas, at Needle, Needle something Texas, who the principal was saying that no protests will be allowed in school. Now, that is not right, because under the Tinker ruling, kids do have the right to protest in school as long as it is peaceful and as long as it does not substantially disrupt school or impinge on the rights of others. Mary Beth, one of the reasons you've been on my mind is I remember you telling me the story. I have since repeated it to my 12-year-old, oh, a thousand times, about how freaked out and scared you were when you were actually yes. called into the carpet. Can Can you just share that? Because I think... For me, it stands for the idea that you only have to be, like, a little bit brave. You don't have to be the bravest kid in school. Can, can you tell me what you were feeling in the moment when you got disciplined? I was so nervous and, and scared, Dahlia, and I my heart was racing as I walked down to the office where I was sent by my math teacher, Mr. Moberly. And then when they told me, the vice principal and uh, the girl's advisor, Mrs. Tarman, told me to take off the black armband, I did that. And there is a lesson there that history is made largely by ordinary people who may have a little bit of courage. And I tell the kids, you don't have to be, you know, Rosa Parks or or uh, some great hero. You can just be you. You can be a uh, scared, you know, 12-year-old, 13 or teenager, whatever it is. Use the little bit of courage you have, and you might be amazed at what a difference you can, you can still make. But my father, he didn't really want us to wear the the black armbands, but we knew something about my dad that he had a soft spot for the conscience because he had lived through World War II and some of his buddies had been killed there. And so when he, he told us, you know, I don't think you should necessarily wear those black arms, but we said, but dad, it's our conscience. And that's what kids now are doing and the adults who support them are also thinking about what's in your conscience. When do you have to take a stand? And you do in democracy and in our world today have to take a stand at times. And that was one of those times for young people. I'm so happy that they are doing that. You visited Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, right, a couple years ago? Yes, yes. I went a few years ago as part of my Tinker Tour. I'm a pedi- I was a pediatric trauma nurse, which is another reason I'm so happy these kids are doing this because I've, there's a, uh, you know, there are thousands of people around the country that patch up kids emotionally, physically, in every other way, who are shot and who are affected by gun violence. And I was one of those people. But I left the hospital in 2013 and started traveling the country speaking to kids about uh, the First Amendment and their rights because I decided that's good for their health also when they can advocate for their own interests. And as part of the tour, I did stop at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, and I had a really good day talking with the students about the things they were speaking up about, such as their music program being cut back, an art program, and the photography program, and just different things that kids were speaking up about and standing up about, budget cuts in their schools, which was, was such a common problem as I travel around the country, and it still is today. I was just reading about the uh, higher education funds being cut in Missouri, where my family lives. And I was with some uh, people at Western Missouri State a couple of days ago, and they had written letters to the legislature, and they're speaking up as well about these issues. But yes, I was I was there, and I was 
invited by the um, journalism teacher, Melissa Falkowski, who has been in the news a lot lately, and, and they their journalism program has been so amazing this week, the way that they've stepped up and they've been reporting on what's going on. And in the journalism classroom itself, I think 150 people or so of students were held there safely until, um, you know, things could be cleared at the school. But I'm so proud of these young journalists and I'm so happy about kids who who are standing up for the free press and who are practicing it in their lives. You mentioned, Mary Beth, that, that, that this is not new. This is of a piece with what minority kids have done around Black Lives Matter for, for, for some time. Can, can you amplify that thought? Because I think uh, for a lot of folks, this yeah. all started a week ago. This didn't start a week ago, right? No, this did not start a week ago. As I said, I, I've been a trauma nurse, <laughs> excuse me, and I started as an EMT, emergency medical technician, and I've, I've been very upset about the violence towards children, gun violence, especially towards children and young people. I'm a member of a group called Moms Demand Action, have been some, for some time. So our meeting about a month ago before the shooting in Florida, to begin the meeting, we read the names of the people who had been killed by gun violence in Washington, D.C. since January 1st. So I admire young people who are speaking up now and also so many young people who have been speaking up for quite some time. But now I think it's really a a turning point. And it's like when the uh, 1963 Birmingham Children's Crusade happened and thousands of kids marched and protested in Birmingham against segregation. Martin Luther King said that it was a turning point when those kids did that and that he had never seen anything like it. And this period that we're in right now with these kids standing up and speaking up about gun violence and the epidemic of gun violence, it reminds me so much of that. Last question for you, Mary Beth. Did you think even two, three years ago, I remember you saying to me, uh, you know, if kids don't exercise this First Amendment muscle, they're going to lose it. Did you think? Yeah. (laughs) Go ahead. I don't, well, yeah, I like to tell kids that as I travel around. I speak to middle school, high school, uh, I was with some kids in Kansas. The, the, the uh, Department of Education of Kansas just had a wonderful problem, I mean, a program, I'm sorry, a few days ago to promote civic engagement in the Kansas schools. And so many kids there were speaking about so many things, whether it was, you know, racist incidents that had happened in their school or their newspaper programs or organic gardening or helping vets or helping animals, animal rights, just so many things. And I like to tell the kids that, the First Amendment is like, it's like your muscles, your five rights of the First Amendment, the right to free speech, to the free press, to freedom of religion, and to assemble, and the right to petition. Those rights are like your muscles, and if we don't use them, we can lose them. So that's another reason I'm so happy to see these kids standing up, because we're in mighty times right now when our Constitution needs to be affirmed and our First Amendment needs to be affirmed. And I think these kids are doing a wonderful job of um, strengthening democracy. Mary Beth Tinker was one of the students who became the name of the case, Tinker versus Des Moines. Mary Beth, thank you so very much for having a moment with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Best wishes and best wishes to the students and to all of their families and the whole community there in Florida. We are with you and I want to let them know that that we are with you and I will do what I can to help to change this um, gun violence situation in our country. Thank you.
We'll be back with more Trumpcast after a short break. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So we wanted to talk today to Adam Winkler. He teaches constitutional law at UCLA and is the author. Well, he's about to be the author of a new book, but he is the author of Gunfight, the Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America, which at least for me really helped illuminate the, the long history of the fight over the Second Amendment. So, so welcome, Adam. Thanks so much for having me. And, and I think I want to start by asking, to the extent that Donald Trump has fully realized views about any policy matter, did he have fully realized formal Second Amendment views up until this week? Well, like almost anything that the president says, it, it's hard uh, to know what to take seriously. He seems to change his views a lot on a lot of issues. And guns are one of those things. Before he became president back in 2000, he wrote that he was supportive of things like assault weapons bans. But then when he was running for president, he said he was not in support of such things. Even just yesterday, he said he was in support of arming teachers and then came out later and said, I never said I was in support of arming teachers. So it's very hard to pin down Donald Trump on guns or really about anything. One thing that's gotten a ton of attention in the last week, Adam, is that Donald Trump did sign a bill almost immediately on taking office that reversed an Obama-era background check on guns for people with mental illnesses. Is that a big deal or a small deal that he did that? It was a small deal in the sense that the regulation had not gone into effect yet, so it hadn't really been implemented. So his change did not significantly alter um, uh, the world as we knew it. However, it does signal a change in the sense that it was a real rollback uh, of, of, of an important measure that was going to do more to keep guns out of the hands of people who are mentally ill at a time when the president and the NRA are insisting that the problem is mental illness and we need to do more to keep guns out of the hands of people who are mentally ill. I want to stop for a minute and just flag one of the things that's been a little shocking to me is the language uh, that Donald Trump has used to talk about mental illness. Dana Lash uh, at the NRA using really extraordinary uh, language around uh, mentally ill people. Is that only shocking to my ears or has has that been the sort of NRA party line that we can just be this contemptuous and dismissive of mental illness? We can sort of use language like crazy and nuts and, you know, lock them up and, and nab them. Is, is that new or am I just weirdly sensitized to it? I think it is new. Uh, it's really only been in the last five or six years where the NRA has really focused on this question of mental illness as an excuse for why we shouldn't have more gun regulations and why instead we should think about all these mass shooters and the gun violence as the result of mental illness. The truth is mental health professionals will say it's not the result of mental illness. There's a big difference between violence and anger and mental illness as we know it uh, medically. And so we are seeing uh, maybe a, a renewed rhetoric about 
mental illness that uses a lot of derogatory terms, that seems to be a function of this particular presidency where um, candidates are lying Ted or crooked Hillary. Uh, there seems to be no norm for, pres- for the president to watch his language and try not to offend people. Adam, I want to go through what I think are the changes in policy that President Trump suggested yesterday with the huge caveat, as you said, that he said, I want to arm teachers. And then he said, I, when I said I wanted to arm teachers, I didn't mean I wanted to arm teachers. So let's just stipulate that we don't exactly know what it is he's planning to do. But can we kind of bump, bump, bump through them and, and you tell me if these are radical departures, either from prior policy or from NRA stated policy. So so one thing he talked about changing was background checks yesterday. At least I, he, he flicked at that. Is, is that a big change? Well, that is a change in that he previously said he was going to support no new restrictive gun laws. And background checks, if we were to get a real good universal background check bill, uh, would make a huge difference in America's gun laws. I fear, however, that what the president is talking about is supporting not universal background checks, but just a mild reform that's been proposed by Senator Cornyn uh, that would just increase uh, the incentives for states to include comprehensive reporting of data to the background check system. And so it's a good fix. It's a fix that improves the background check system a little bit, but it doesn't address the fundamental problem with our background check system, which is that somewhere between 25 and 40% of gun sales don't happen with a background check. So so what about, it seems to me, maybe a bigger deal that he announces that he's game for ending the sale of bump stocks. Is that a bigger deal? The bump stock ban is not a big deal for two reasons. Number one, these items are very rare. People do not own them. They're not associated with uh, uh, with any mass shooting other than that Las Vegas shooting. It's also um, a little bit of theater, political theater. He came out and made it like his desire to regulate bump stocks was a function of the Parkland shooting uh, and his desire to do something. But this was a deal that was agreed upon by the White House and Democratic and Republican leaders in Congress in December when there was consideration of a new legislation on bump stocks. And the deal was made instead to pass this back to the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms for new regulations. So he's taking credit for something that had been decided months before. Good to know. What about, again, he may or may not be for this, but, you know, we're going to have concealed carry in the classrooms. We're going to arm the teachers and the janitors and the cafeteria lady who's all like, would you like tuna tetrazzini and me to defend you from armed marauders? But let's say he means all that. Is that new concealed carry arming teachers in classrooms? Uh, You know, you'd be amazed to go into the cafeteria and have you know, one of the cafeteria workers pull out uh, a handgun from their hairnet uh, <laughs> that you have in the cafeteria. Um, this is, it's not a new idea. We've seen the NRA promote this idea since the wave of school shootings really began some years ago, uh, where uh, their argument is, is the answer to a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun, and so we should arm teachers. Uh, of course, the problem with this is that police officers are uh, extensively trained with firearms and still only hit their intended target about 18% of the time. Uh, and we're always complaining that uh, they're using violence too quickly, even with all their training. 
we could see something similar with teachers and uh, soon find ourselves complaining that teachers are too violent. Uh, and obviously, we don't want violence in the classroom. And and it's worth probably just flagging, Adam, that teachers, I think, by and large, really hate this idea, right? Which may be why Trump this morning tweeted that he didn't mean it when he said he meant it. Well, it would be a really uh, fanciful trick if he were to pull it off. I mean, uh, since Trump was elected, there's been what's called a Trump slump in gun sales. Sales are down uh, about 10 percent year to date. Uh, which is a pretty big rollback on sales of guns. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, if we have, there's about 3 million primary and uh, secondary school teachers in America, if you can arm them all, you pretty much solve the gun sale problem that Trump has been, and the gun makers have been dealing with. Adam, is there an explanation for the Trump slump? Are people just super happy and feeling that Obama doesn't want to take their guns away, and so they've stopped shopping? Well, that is actually a big part of the reason. One of the ironies or tragedies of gun control is that when new laws are proposed, it leads to huge spikes in gun sales as people run out to buy the guns that are about to be banned. Uh, there has been a Trump slump in part because uh, the gun, uh, gun buyers know that Donald Trump is not going to support restrictive new gun laws. Although the real question, I guess, will be in the next year, now that gun control seems to be back on the agenda, are we going to see more sales of things like assault rifles that are one of the targets of gun control uh, regulatory efforts? One last question that's uh, maybe Trump adjacent, and that is uh, yesterday's CNN town hall featuring uh, the students who survived the Parkland shooting and the parents of some of the victims. Uh, Marco Rubio, senator from Florida, actually showed up and took the heat. Dana Lash, representing the NRA, showed up as well. I I wonder if you could tell me if anything that either Rubio or Lash agreed to was a big departure from prior views, prior policies. Well, one of the most remarkable things about the Parkland shooting has been the mobilization of all these students. They're really already having an impact. Not only is Donald Trump talking about some at least mild reforms, but at least talking about reforms. But you also have someone like Marco Rubio, who's been dead set against any new gun regulations, now saying that he might support a ban on high-capacity magazines uh, or universal background checks. We are seeing some potential movement from some Republicans who believe that the politics on this issue may be shifting. It's the thing to remember. The reason why gun rights are so strong in America is not because of the Second Amendment. It's because the NRA has been a very effective and well-organized political fighting force. And if gun control advocates can mobilize the way we are seeing mobilization after Parkland, it could level the playing field. Let's talk about the fact that this is a uh, the enigma, the central enigma around gun control is that there's a policy uh, set of questions and then they're wrapped in this constitutional wrapping paper. And and folks just have this notion that I may hate the AR-15. I may hate the idea that we don't have background checks. You know, we know that polling supports all kinds of reasonable measures, but my hands are tied because Second Amendment. And so I think there's a strange interplay between between the constitutional arguments and the political and policy arguments. And I wonder if you can, I think this a little bit goes to the thesis of Gunfight, your book, but can you unpack a little bit for listeners what what that kind of back and forth has done in terms of having an actual debate about this issue? We often think that policy reforms are off the table because of the Second Amendment. But 
in part that's because of a very distorted view of the Second Amendment that the NRA has been immensely successful at promoting. In the NRA's view, the Second Amendment doesn't allow restriction on assault rifles. But the courts have upheld restrictions on assault rifles uniformly. Under the NRA's version of the right to bear arms, uh, you have a right to carry a gun in public without even a permit saying the Second Amendment is the only permit they need. But no court in the country has ever agreed with such a statement uh, and such a view of the Second Amendment. One of the things the NRA has been so successful at, though, is shaping these policy debates in terms of uh, the Constitution. Because uh, a lot of people will say, hey, I'd love to support that reform, but I've got to support the Constitution more than anything. We really revere our Constitution, so shaping those arguments in constitutional terms is very effective as a political tool. So, so, so that leads me to my question about why. We, we know that when the Supreme Court decided Heller, essentially they said, okay, you have a right to a, a, a handgun in your home to protect your home. And then Justice Scalia, who wrote the opinion, famously went on and said, but hey, 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 that doesn't mean, you know, you can have a rocket launcher in your backyard. Let's be really clear that I'm not saying this is this expansive and and limitless right. And then given opportunity after opportunity, you've just said, you know, we've had four federal appeals courts that have ruled against the notion that assault weapons are protected under Heller. And here's the Supreme Court just (laughs) refusing to take a case to clarify the scope of this right. In other words, we know what Heller stands for. We have no idea what the limits of Heller are. And the court has what? chosen to just ghost on us? It seems that the court has ghosted on us. It gave us these opinions, but the Heller and the McDonald opinion, while making clear that the Second Amendment does protect an individual right to bear arms, and that that right applies at both the state at both the state and federal level, the Supreme Court has left a lot of questions unanswered, and it seems very uninterested in jumping into the fray and clarifying. In fairness to the Supreme Court, though, um, there's been a tremendous amount of litigation uh, in the lower courts, and there hasn't been that much disagreement among the lower courts about the scope of the Second Amendment. And the truth is, uh, the court often looks for a split among the circuits before it steps into a really controversial issue. It's not a hard, fast rule, to be sure, uh, but it provides at least some cover and a justification for the Supreme Court to stay at hand until those kinds of circuit splits in the lower courts arise. So so this week was a good example of a case that the court declined to hear coming out of California. This might have been a vehicle to answer at least some questions still on the table after Heller and uh, McDonald. Can you talk a little bit about the case the court batted away this week? Sure. The court decided not to decide a case out of California dealing with uh, my state's 10-day waiting period on gun purchases. But it was an unusual case because it only challenged the waiting periods as applied to people who already own guns, which means many of the arguments for waiting periods, such as it would provide a cooling off period, don't really apply with the same force. So it was a promising vehicle for gun rights advocates uh, to try to get a couple more votes on the Supreme Court for a law that frankly is not going to do very much uh, to reduce uh, criminal violence or suicide. But nonetheless, the Supreme Court chose not to hear it. There weren't four votes to grant cert. Uh, We don't know what the vote was, but we do know that Justice Thomas, 
filed a dissent from the denial of cert, saying that the court should have taken the case and that the court's failure to do so shows that the court thinks that the Second Amendment is a disfavored right that doesn't get the same kind of protection as other rights under the Constitution. And is, is here where I, I issue the obligatory caution that Ruth Bader Ginsburg is 84, Anthony Kennedy is 81, Steve Breyer is 78, and Donald Trump has 130-some federal court vacancies to fill up. And so maybe it doesn't matter what happens in the political arena, because uh, it is possible that we get a very robust view of the Second Amendment coming out of the courts in the coming years. It's not an irrational fear. I mean, what we uh, I presume that if Donald Trump gets the opportunity to nominate more people to the Supreme Court, they're going to be very strong pro-gun votes. Uh, whether it makes a difference or not in the Second Amendment, uh, jurisprudence coming out of the Supreme Court may just depend on really what Anthony Kennedy and Chief Justice John Roberts think about the Second Amendment. They voted uh, in both the Heller and the McDonald cases to support broad Second Amendment rights, but have clearly been um, absent from the denials uh, from like Justice Thomas's dissents from the denial of cert in the Second Amendment cases. They are not signing up for it, and in fact seems pretty clear they're voting. They're not voting for cert. You only need four votes for cert, and we've seen uh, Justices Alito, Thomas, and the Scalia-slash-Gorsuch seat all complain that the Supreme Court hasn't done more to clarify the Second Amendment. If those three can't get that fourth vote, uh, it means they're not getting the vote of Chief Justice John Roberts or uh, Associate Justice Anthony Kennedy. Adam Winkler is a professor of constitutional law at UCLA and author of the forthcoming book, We the Corporations, How American Business Won Their Civil Rights. We're going to be talking more about that book in an upcoming episode of Amicus, which is the podcast I usually host. Adam, thank you so much for taking time to chat with us today. Thank you so much. And that is the show for today. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. You can follow Trumpcast on Twitter at RealTrumpcast. That's at RealTrumpcast to keep up with the latest goings on around the show. And hey, if you listen to Trumpcast but don't listen to Amicus, well, we should fix that. Amicus is the show I usually host, and you can find it wherever you're listening to this podcast. On Amicus, we talk about everything that's happening around the law and the courts and the Supreme Court, and I think you're going to love it. So if you enjoyed the show, be sure to check out Amicus. Virginia Heffernan will be back tomorrow, thank God, to talk about Facebook with Wired's Nick Thompson, plus a special guest. Until then, I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and thank you for listening. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply.